that the summer has gotten off to a slow start is like calling a 96-mile-per-hour fastball a little sluggish. As Capital Region residents prepare for the July 4th holiday weekend, the country is still reeling from news of controversial Supreme Court rulings, an explosive January 6th committee hearing, a major primary election in New York, and more. The newsroom has definitely had its hands full. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. Hochul absolutely cruised to victory with uh, 66% of the vote. And we'll learn more about new sexual abuse allegations leveled against former Albany Diocese leader Bishop Howard Hubbard. They said that uh, for one brother it was on one occasion, for the other brother it was on many occasions that Hubbard and Mercure took part together in sexually abusing, more so the older brother. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. Okay, we are here with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. As always, we are going to talk about the top news this week. Let's start with a recap of the results of this week's primary election, the first of two this season. What what did we take away from it? Yes, Tuesday's uh, contests included statewide races and assembly nominations, as well as just a handful of local races in the capital region. There were a few judicial seats. But of course, the big news was the gubernatorial races and the races for lieutenant governor. You may recall, Jess, uh, about eight, nine months ago, right after Governor Kathy Hochul took office in the wake of Andrew Cuomo's resignation, we were saying, well, this is going to be a barn burner of a primary because of the likely challenge that she was going to face from Attorney General Letitia James. And that, of course, um, by Thanksgiving, if memory serves, was uh, a non-starter. You know, Tis James said she was going to seek uh, another full term as AG. And instead, the challenge, uh, kind of in classic form, came just from Hochul's right in the form of Tom Swazi, the Long Island congressman, and uh, Jamani Williams, the New York City uh, public advocate. Uh, and Hochul absolutely cruised to victory with uh, 66% of the vote. Uh, Jamani Williams came in second uh, with 19%, and Swazi really underperformed um, less than, than 13%. Hochul received 575,000 votes. Uh, it was definitely a low turnout primary. On the Republican side, uh, it was a similar story, a a little bit more interesting. Lee Zeldin, who was sort of anointed at the outset of this election cycle, uh, he uh, likes Mr. Swazi as a Long Island congressman, albeit a Republican, and he quickly snapped up the endorsement of 
the, the kind of institutionalists within the GOP, and then the the kind of uh, right flank challenge, if you will, although Lee Zeldin is definitely a deeply conservative candidate, came from Andrew Giuliani, the son of the former New York City mayor, with Rob Astorino, a former gubernatorial candidate and Westchester County executive, and Harry Wilson kind of bringing up the rear. And there as well, Zeldin uh, absolutely cruised, although with a smaller percentage of the vote, about 43, 44%. And that toted up to 194,000 votes, which is almost exactly a a third of the votes that that Kathy Hochul received, which will be a sign of uh, just how difficult it's going to be for a deeply conservative Republican like Zeldin to win in a very, very blue state like New York. Uh, Just under uh, on the ticket, Antonio Delgado uh, held off a challenge from his left and and Hochul's left. And uh, basically, uh, with the exception of a couple of assembly races where long tenured incumbents were tossed out by progressive opponents, it was a fairly unexciting uh, primary night. But remember, if you didn't like this one, we've got another one coming in two months. That one will be for state Senate and for Congress, which is going to be a much bigger deal. There are um, some very interesting narratives there, including out in Western New York, where Carl Palladino uh, and Nick Langworthy, who is the chair of the state party, are vying for the nomination in basically a seat right outside Buffalo. Well, it's going to be an exciting year going into September and November, which will be here in no time, although I don't want to think about that because I'm just starting to enjoy summer. Last week when we talked, we discussed the United States Supreme Court's fresh ruling that struck down New York's concealed carry gun law. That was a case that originated here in the Capital Region. And this week, there's more SCOTUS news that has ties to New York and this region. Can you talk about what happened there this week? Yes. And actually, it's two cases related to one scandal. Uh, the court granted what's known as writ of certiorari, <laughs> forgive my Latin, in uh, two cases related to the Buffalo Billion scandal. One was an appeal brought by Louis Simonelli, a Buffalo area developer who was convicted as part of a bid rigging scandal that also scooped up Alain Calieros, the very high profile founder of SUNY Polytechnic Institute. Calieros was put in charge of, he was essentially the governor's point man, former governor Andrew Cuomo, I should say, the point man for a lot of the the high tech developments that the governor was putting in place really all across upstate. Um, Federal prosecutors in Manhattan uh, were able to convict both men for taking part in a bid rigging scandal. The Supreme Court is now going to hear an appeal related to what is known as the right to control theory uh, involving fraud. And that basically says that anyone who denies, you know, fiscal information to an entity that is making an economic decision has committed a crime that you have taken, you have denied that entity the right to control their own economic decisions. And that's what they are saying these men conspired to do. In the case of Joe Prococo, it is a different statute in question. The What's known as the Federal Honest Services 
statute. And that has been used to convict public officials who violate, who, who essentially defraud the public of what they deserve, which is honest services of public officials. And Prococo is claiming when I took what the government uh, has characterized as bribes from uh, developers and those seeking business before the state, I was not a public official. I was rather managing the former governor's 2014 reelection campaign. So honest services doesn't apply to me. Now, prosecutors have argued in the Cagliaros case that even though he did not personally benefit from this bid rigging scandal, he was sort of, you know, building his kingdom of influence uh, at SUNY Polytechnic in upstate. And in the case of Prococo, they're arguing or prosecutors were able to convince a jury that Prococo still retained so much of his influence when uh, campaign manager Prococo called up uh, a state agency, for example, and said, hey, you got to do this. He was clearly flexing the muscle that was given to him as the governor's closest confidant. And it's worth noting that Prococo left the executive chamber, meaning Cuomo's office, and went to become his campaign manager and then went back to the executive chamber as a taxpayer-funded employee after the campaign was over, after Cuomo was reelected. So also it's worth noting that Chris Bragg, our outstanding investigative reporter, noted that for the eight months that he was out of government service and managing the campaign, he was in on many, many days working out of his taxpayer-funded executive chamber office in Midtown Manhattan. So it's just an indication that the the lines there were very, very fuzzy. But um, two interesting cases related to state government fraud that are going to be taken up by the court when they come back in the fall. And we will be watching that. Stay tuned by keeping an eye on Capital Confidential section of timesunion.com. All right, the next big story that we reported on was about a cold case that is nearly 15 years old. The disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker in 2007. There was uh, some developments in that this week. Can you tell us more? On Wednesday, uh, state police did a search of a wooded area near the South Troy Dodgers baseball fields on what they informed um, Jalik Rainwalker's uh, grandmother, uh, adoptive uh, grandmother, that is uh, said was a a tip that uh, led them there. It does not appear, they have not said that they found anything significant related to the disappearance of the 12-year-old, as you noted, 15 years ago. It is one of the most mysterious and compelling cold cases in the region. There have been, you know, numerous theories floated, numerous searches as well. Uh, A couple of years ago, there was a portion of uh, a body, I believe it was a skull that was found that, and of course, elicited a lot of thought that it might be related to the, the Rainwalker disappearance that turned out not to be the case. But, you know, as you noted, the 15th anniversary of Jaleek's disappearance is coming up. I will tell you, I don't think I'm giving away the store to note that the Times Union has been doing its own investigative work on the case and the ensuing investigations. And uh, we will be ready to unveil that in uh, the near future. Yes. Stay tuned for that. Thank you so much, Casey. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. 
As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. After the break, we're going to learn more about new sexual abuse allegations that have been leveled against former Albany Diocese leader Bishop Howard Hubbard. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. This week, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany announced a proposal to use a court-supervised mediation plan to compensate more than 400 victims of sexual abuse who brought cases under New York's Child Victims Act. It's either that, current Bishop Edward Scharfenberger says, or filing for bankruptcy. The announcement came just days after Times Union investigative editor Brendan Lyons broke a story about two men from Queensbury accusing former Bishop Howard Hubbard of sexually abusing them as children more than 30 years ago. I caught up with Brendan to learn more about his reporting. But before we hear some of our conversation on this, just a word of caution. Some of the situations described in this segment may be disturbing to hear. Please take care as you listen. Former Bishop Howard Hubbard has already got a number of lawsuits filed against him that include accusations of sexual abuse, um, those leveled against him personally, as well as a large number of lawsuits filed against the Albany Diocese that he used to run. Can you go over what has happened so far? Bishop Emeritus Howard J. Hubbard, who was the head of the diocese from 1977 to 2014, he was at the helm of this 14-county diocese for for much of the time that childhood sexual abuse is alleged to have occurred. And at times, it was arguably unbridled childhood sexual abuse. He has since acknowledged concealing the abuse from parishioners and the public and having priests sent to treatment. But as the Child Victims Act a few years ago opened up the window for many of these victims and alleged victims to file claims against the diocese, the priests, or the church that may have harbored them, Hubbard himself became a target in what I believe is now seven court claims. Now, what you reported on this week is a new set of allegations. Can you tell us about them? That's right. This past week, we wrote about two brothers who grew up in Queensbury and Warren County and were parishioners at Our Lady of Annunciation, where they were altar boys. And they had been abused, sexually abused, it was confirmed, by Gary Mercure, who was a priest and and also was a, a close associate of Howard Hubbard for many years. In this instance, the boys, the brothers who are now in their 40s, they said that Uh, For one brother, it was on one occasion. For the other brother, it was on many occasions that Hubbard and Mercure took part together in sexually abusing, more so the older brother. That allegation by the older brother is very 
difficult for the diocese to, to withstand in part because these brothers testified at Gary Mercure's trial. They helped convict him in Massachusetts where he had made the mistake of bringing altar boys from New York on ski trips and sexually abusing them there where there was no statute of limitations like New York's. So he was able to be prosecuted. Now, before we go on, I just want to mention that we are not identifying these men on purpose. They have asked not to be identified, and it is the Times Union's policy not to identify alleged victims of sexual abuse without their explicit consent. So moving on now, um, what the brothers told you was pretty graphic. Uh, It may be hard for some people to hear. It was certainly hard to read. But can you kind of give us a short summary of what these two men are alleging exactly? So more so for the older brother, um, it started when he was eight years old and continued all the way through high school. The older brother described that Mercure would sometimes bring him to Lake George motels. And he said that Hubbard was very careful. He did not want a high profile. He did not want to run into people that they knew and that he would come there, and he contends that in these motels, he he gave me a specific name of one motel where a lot of times they went, and he said that Hubbard and and Mercure would both sexually abuse him, that Hubbard would leave after the encounters quickly. He would not stay around, and he would not join them going out for dinner, where Mercure would take the boy out to dinner, and he said sometimes... Through the years, he would give him money. He would just hand him three to five hundred dollars. And at one point, he said his father confronted him and asked him if he was stealing because while he had a job, you know, as he got older in his teenage years, but as a young kid, 12, 13, it, there was no explanation for, hey, why are you carrying all this money? Where did it come from? Um, but in other instances, he said that there was abuse at the rectory at Our Lady of Annunciation, that Hubbard, when he would come there for uh, large ceremonies like Christmas masses or confirmation ceremonies, that Mercure would allegedly arrange for Hubbard to have access to him. That's interesting because he said that he felt that Mercure was, was sort of the enabler, that he would set it up for Hubbard to be able to have a victim without having to do the grooming himself. And that's that's an allegation that has surfaced in other claims against the bishop as well. What is Hubbard's response to these allegations? Hubbard has, has denied sexually abusing anyone. He has made that denial personally in statements, as well as through his attorney, who um, one of his attorneys told us in this story that the bishop forcefully denies these allegations and that he never even met these boys or now men. And, but when I said to him, I said, how does he know he never met them? If he went, if he went to Our Lady of Annunciation 30 years ago, 35 years ago to attend a confirmation or something, how does he not know that he didn't meet him? And he backed off and said, well, you're right. He, he could have met them, but he's met thousands of people. But he has also pointed out that some of the allegations against the bishop are are just not able to be believed, he said, because in one instance, uh, a man accuses Howard Hubbard of sexually abusing him in a bus, a tour bus, during a halftime of an Army-Navy game at West Point. And he says the problem with that, which he, he said that 
Army and Navy haven't played a football game at West Point since the 1940s, which is true. They did play their a game in 2020, but that would have been well after this alleged incident had, had taken place. So Hubbard's defense is to sort of key on those statements and allegations that are not being sustained by the official record of his travels or where he's been and that sort of thing. And in the instances where there is no defense of the allegations other than to say it never happened, that's what he, that's what he's left with. The, the thing that has set sparked a lot of interest in this case in Hubbard's relationship with Mercure, especially among uh, the advocates for child abuse victims, is they note the information that we've reported that that Hubbard has taken time to either call or visit Gary Mercure in prison where he's serving 25 years for rape and sexual abuse, but that he had never reached out to or visited Mercure's victims. According to some of these advocates, they feel that that's very telling, that it could be an indication that Hubbard is trying to maintain a close relationship with Mercure. If these allegations are true, then Mercure could could certainly come forward and say that the bishop was with me and took part in this, but he is he has not done that. Now, one of the other defenses that you write about uh, that Hubbard's lawyer has leveled. Now, this is a common one, I think, with cases of this nature, where you're looking at things that happened decades and decades ago, and the defense will argue, well, why are you coming forward now with allegations against Hubbard as opposed to, you know, in this particular case during Mercure's criminal trial in 2011? So can you talk about how that question comes into play here? I asked um, the older brother that question. Why now and why in 2008 when your attorney first leveled these allegations against Mercure, wasn't there any mention of the bishop? And his contention was that there was a few things going on there. One was that his father was in a decade-long health battle that ultimately he he would lose his life to, and he felt that he had already there was already enough being heaped on this family. Their mother had learned eight years earlier that Mercure had had kissed one of the boys and was just so upset about that and trying to confront the diocese officials about it and felt that she had been brushed off by them and told, what do you want from us? What do you want us to do? He's had trouble and that sort of thing. He was also reluctant because he contends that the diocese reaction to the abuse allegations against Mercure was to cast it as teen and preteen boys experimenting with homosexual sex rather than child sexual abuse. He was being raped, he said, or sexually abused when he was eight years old. He was in the third grade. He said that he just felt reluctant to take on the larger battle because of the backlash that they expected to receive from the diocese at a time, too, when Hubbard was at the helm. And so I think as more claims were filed against the bishop over the last three years, sexual abuse claims, that it it loosened the edges for them, that it made them feel more comfortable coming out and going public with their story. The one thing I would note is that it was not new to us. Their attorney had told the Times Union about these allegations against the bishop 
more than four or five years ago, but it was under the agreement that at that time we could not report on it because the brother was not ready to go public. In addition, back in, I want to say it was 2014, their attorney had notified the attorney for the diocese, Michael Costello, that in fact, there was another member of the clergy who had sexually abused the older brother, but that at that time, they did not want to identify that clergy member. And they now say, eight years later, that clergy member was Howard Hubbard. What happens next? I think what's next is these, in this particular case, these two brothers had their lawsuit against the diocese and the church thrown out of court because they had signed an agreement in 2016 to take $90,000 each to get counseling. The letter in the agreement they signed said that was not to cover pain and suffering. But the diocese has successfully argued in court so far through a mid-level appellate court that that was a general release. They have no right to get a settlement. And it's extremely upsetting to them because they said they're not looking for money. They're not looking for $10 million, but they're looking for some compensation because they said it's the only way to get justice, to get some sort of restitution or or compensation for what took place, the years of abuse that they endured. And then you have these other cases against the bishop that are going forward slowly, very slowly, and ultimately some of these cases are going to end up going to trial, it seems. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler and Brendan Lyons for their contribution to this episode.